come together. Um, so one thing that my wife knows about me that, that you all probably don't is that I'm a sucker for marketing. Um, if ever we go to like a fast food restaurant or even a sit-down restaurant, you know, it's like they'll have a picture of that new burger or chicken sandwich or something, and and I just like get suckered into like wanting to go for it. And so, um, case in point, on Mother's Day, um, we all went out to Carabas. My mom was in town, and she likes Carabas. They had this like special menu, and they had lamb chops. Okay, I, I, I don't get lamb chops, but the picture just looked succulent, you know. And so, and and so I get the lamb chops, and the whole time everyone's eating their other nice Carabas traditional meals that are delicious, and I'm eating the lamb chops, going, oh, mm, I'm gonna, you know, get this down. But it took the whole rest of the day to get that taste out of my mouth. And, um, <clears throat> and, and so I should have just stuck with something tried and true like chicken marsala. Um, so anyway, but I, I'm just, I'm a sucker for marketing. So I don't know how many times you all have been to a bookstore, Christian bookstore, or heard a teaching where the title of the book or the sermon was the key to whatever, fill in the blank, or three keys to overcoming fill in the blank. Uh, again, I'm a sucker for these kinds of things as well. So, uh, whereas I should probably be a little more skeptical about them. But if I be, buy these books these days, um, I almost have to hide them from my wife because she'll just shake her head because um, she knows I'm a sucker for them. But that's probably more due to the fact that my bookshelf is just filled with books I buy but then never end up reading, um, never get around to it. Uh, so... Anyway, let's turn our Bibles this morning to John 15. Um, hopefully, maybe some of you guys are already there. Um, so my message this morning is titled, The Key to the Christian Life. Now, I say that tongue-in-cheek. But I think that we are going to be convinced that what Jesus is telling the disciples in this passage is at least a key to living a life that brings him glory as he is about to leave them not too many hours from now. There are a number of things here in John 15, and so I'm going to split this message up into a part one and a part two since uh, we're going to take uh, two Sundays to go through John 15. So this will be Abiding in Christ, part one. Um, uh, so I don't know if it exactly happened this way, but at the end of John 14, the last words are Jesus saying, rise, let us go from, from here. And they were obviously in that room, wherever they were having the Last Supper. And, um, and then they're going somewhere across town to end up in the Garden of Gethsemane. And like I said, I don't know if it exactly happened this way, but I kind of picture it happening this way that they're walking across town and somehow they come across a vineyard. And Jesus, just being the master teacher he was, that always just used illustrations that they would come across. I picture him just kind of stopping there at the vineyard and launching into this dialogue in John 15 where he, where he uses this real-life horticultural illustration to teach a significant lesson to the disciples that we have with us today. 
So I'm going to read these verses one more time if you all have them in front of you. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. <clears throat> so I'm just going to just spend a short period of time here at the beginning addressing um, this. Uh, we're going to spend most of our time talking about abiding and bearing fruit, but I just want to quickly address the branches that don't bear fruit um, and are taken away and are gathered together and burned. Because of the overwhelming scriptures that speak to true believers being saved by God's grace forever, um, I don't believe that an interpretation of these couple verses in John 15 could have anything to do with a believer losing their salvation and no longer being part of the family of God. So in my understanding, that leaves a couple other options here. Um, one, he could be talking about the many seekers that never became true believers. We've I mean, repeatedly throughout John, we've seen this, okay? I'm just going to bring a couple examples in. In John 8, in the light of the world passage, he's preaching about he's the light of the world and many other great things. And as he says these, it says, many believed in him. And so you would think like, wow, look, he's getting a bunch of believers. But then he, you know, he goes like one step too far. He says, if you abide in me, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Well, as soon as he said that, they started arguing with him. And um, those that believed in him had a very short-lived um, belief. So um, then there's John 6, when the uh, disciples that, um, he had many disciples following him at this point, and, um, and then he launches into the John 6 passage about being the bread of life. And uh, my my body is the is the bread, and my and my blood is, my blood is the is the um, um, anyway. <coughs> Sorry, I should do it this way. <coughs> so okay, and um and then it says um, that many walked away after the message about the bread of life. So he had some would-be followers, some would-be believers in him up to that point, and then they fade away. And, um, and then Jesus himself said that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but that he never knew them. And these are obviously people that believe that they are in him all the way till the last day. But according to him, they're not. Um, and then, of course, there was Judas, who was with Jesus for three years and even had the other disciples duped into thinking that he was for real. Um, 
but he, he was not. So <clears throat> that's one option that this could be talking about, about the people that are not bearing fruit, the branches that are not bearing fruit. Another option that I'm thinking that this could be talking about could be that he's talking about true believers that once abided and bore fruit, but then through some circumstance of life or deception of the enemy, stopped abiding, and perhaps the Lord said, well, I cannot use that one anymore for fruit. And I think, I think there's a parallel passage in Paul talks about in 2 Timothy 2.20 that is somewhat of a parallel to this a little bit, and I'm going to read it. It's, parallel, it's 2 Timothy 2.20, and he says, Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. And if you just think about analogy a little bit and you think about your own house and wherever your cupboard is with your glasses, let's just say that you have some up there that are dirty and you have guests come over and they're going to go up there and grab a glass. You know, they are never going to reach for the dirty ones. Never. Those dirty glasses will never be used. They really have no use for anything anymore if they will remain dirty if they're always going to remain dirty. Um, they, they need to be clean or no one's ever going to use them. So to summarize this, whether these branches are not true believers or true believers who are of no use anymore in the context of bearing fruit, what I think is the important part of this passage that we need to learn is that we need to focus on being fruit-bearing branches. Um, in fact, when presented with a situation where possibly some of Paul's former companions took a left turn from the truth. This is how he summed it up. And again, this is the this is the couple verses right before the passage where Paul's talking about the vessels in the house. And <clears throat> he says this, remind them of these things. He's, he's talking to Timothy, okay? And he's talking to him about how to go about teaching people in these churches Okay, and he says, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness, and their talk will spread like gangrene. Among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus, who have swerved, swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. And I think my point here is that the Lord knows those who are his. Here's a situation where some companions of Paul took a swerve from the truth. They're teaching some things that aren't right, but God knows those who are his. I'm sure that we've all experienced people, family, friends in our lives that have taken left turns from the truth. Um, just this yesterday, I was reading a story about a guy who 
professed to come to know Christ when he was five years old, um, was baptized, had so many swerves from the truth throughout his whole life. I mean, was a drug addict, had three failed marriages, I mean, many, many things. And then he's about in his 60s now, and he just came back to the Lord and, and is, is, has found God's grace and peace in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, I'll just leave it at this. The Lord knows those who are his. I'll also say that when it talks about God pruning, I don't think we're the ones who necessarily know how long that pruning season takes place. And we don't have, we don't have uh, an idea on, let's just say in your life you only produced one grape a year and God's pruning you. And uh, another one grape, one grape, two grapes, back to one grape, one grape, one grape, a bushel. You know, I mean, we don't know any of those things, okay? So I would dare say that God is very patient on pruning us to develop fruit through his branches of those who are his. Um, so let's talk about fruit-bearing branches. <clears throat> so I think we would all agree that we were created for God's glory. We've heard that before. Um, that typically in the Old Testament comes from a passage in Isaiah 43 um, that states that very thing. Um, there is this old Westminster Catechism from the 1600s that you've probably all heard this um, question in it. What is the chief end of man? And the answer is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. I think what's very amazing about this uh, passage, if you just Jump ahead real quick to John, to 15, verse 16. He says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. Um, so I think verse 16 is incredibly encouraging in here and that we have a verse in the New Testament where Jesus, God himself is saying that I chose you and appointed you that you should glorify me. You're like, what? Wait, no, it, it didn't say that. It said that you should go and bear fruit. Yes, he chose us and appointed us to bear fruit, but then connected with verse 8, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. So we have the Old Testament, Isaiah 43, that he created us to glorify him. We have the New Testament in John 15 that we were created to bear fruit, and what glorifies him is fruit bearing. So um, it's, I think it's pretty cut and dried um, what we were created for. Um, so perhaps many of you, when thinking of glorifying God, um, you, you've pondered this before and you've thought, you think of like some grand plans of like, oh, to glorify God, I need to accomplish this or this needs to happen or... And maybe you get that from reading people's biographies of great Christians or some missionary that did some great things and you're just thinking, 
wow, look at what God did through, through you know, in the, in the life of that guy. Um, but is God only glorified in the grand and the big? I don't think so. He's glorified in fruit. Um, not that the fruit can't be grand and big, but I'll explain. So we know you were created to glorify God, to magnify him, to display him, to, to render honor to him. These are all other synonyms for glorifying him. But how? How do we wrestle with this question? What's great about this passage is God's stated way in this passage is quite simple. How is God glorified? It says right here in verse 8, by this is my, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit. So what if we ask the question, what shall I do with my life? How shall I organize my time? What things should I pursue for your glory? The answer is clear. Do things that revolve around bearing much fruit. Okay, but if I was you sitting out there, I'd go like, Oh, thanks, Lord. What what does that mean? Okay, like, and I'm sure that you've thought that before. I've thought it before. Okay, but I think the obvious next question then is what exactly is fruit? Okay, what exactly is fruit? So if God is saying that this is what glorifies me, then we need to know what it is that needs to be produced. So we're going to go back and read verse 5, okay? I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So I think the last phrase is, is a key. Whatever fruit is, it is apparently something that cannot be produced without Christ's abiding presence and work. Okay? Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So this helps us narrow it down a little bit. Think of all that we can do. Okay? Think of all that we can do apart from abiding in Christ. And this could not be the fruit that he is talking about here. Okay? So when he's talking about bearing fruit, it's not the things that we can do apart from abiding in him. And there, I think this is our problem in, in America, right? There's a lot of things we can do. <laughs> um, I think this is what gets in the way oftentimes of God getting glory through our lives is because we just have a can-do attitude. Well, we're just... We can run organizations, don't need Christ. We can run, we can set up and run church programs. I can preach a message. We can do a song service. We can um, create rules and standards to live by. A lot of societies have done that without Christ. We can make a living. There's lots of things we can do without abiding in Christ, lots. So what is it that we are asked to produce that cannot be produced apart from abiding in Christ. I submit to you this morning that the fruit Jesus is talking about that cannot be produced apart from abiding in Christ 
are the things that only God can do. The fruit that only God can produce because without him, it's not going to happen at all. And that's the fruit that I believe he's talking about here. The fruit that only God can produce, not things that we can do without him. What are some, what are some things that only God can do? Okay. He, he can produce spiritual fruit in our lives. Okay. He can take a selfish person and he can develop the fruit of the Spirit through my life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. But that's not how I naturally want to go. You know, I don't naturally want to have those qualities. Um, I want to be selfish. I want to be prideful. I want to get my own way. I don't want, I want to be impatient. Um, uh, I don't really want to be loving. Um, so th- these, are, these are the things that only God can do. Um, he can make spiritually dead people become spiritually alive. That is God's fruit. He can transform our wandering hearts and nature to the image of Christ through sanctification. That is something that only God can do. And this is why I believe God is glorified through this, because God is able to do something in us and through us that nobody else can do, including by our own human efforts. So to summarize point one, what glorifies God? Bearing much fruit. Okay, so if bearing fruit, and we talked about what bearing fruit is, the things that only God can do. So if bearing fruit is what glorifies God, then what steps do we need to take to be seeing that happen? All right, so now we're going to read verse 4, 5, and 7. So 4 says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So we have a lot of this back and forth. Abide me and I in you, abide me and I in you, which right now I'm just like, okay, well, yeah, not quite, not real practical yet. Seven, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. So in verse seven, Jesus expands this thought about what it looks like to abide in me and me and you. He says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. So it's a, it's a short but very significant phrase We could go back and forth with the abide in me and I abide in you, but he lets us see practically here how we let Jesus abide in us. It tells us right here, we abide in Christ as his words abide in us. That's why that song was so meaningful to me, because his words are so important, because this is the key for how Christ abides in us and we abide in him, it's through his words. Christ abiding in us is letting his words abide in us. 
So I want to expound on what that looks like. Letting Jesus abide in us means letting Jesus abide in us, <clears throat> not as a silent guest, not as a silent guest, but as someone who speaks to us as one we welcome into our lives with the authority to have opinions in our lives, as someone whose commands become the laws of our lives. The words of God are connected to his very presence. Why? Because they are living words, because they are words of eternal life. So what does that look like for us today? It looks like taking whatever steps are necessary to keep the living voice of Jesus speaking to you through the words he spoke in scripture. It means reordering our lives so that the words of Christ, the words in the Bible, are prominent in our lives. And I'm sorry, but I'm going to have an accident if I... What it also means is that I cannot look at any of you with a straight face and say that I have a deepening relationship with Christ if I don't have a commitment to integrating his words into my life. And I don't think that you all can look at me with a straight face either if you don't. It just doesn't work that way. We may desire the experience of knowing Jesus. We may desire thriving relationships with God's people. I know we, we all do. We we may want to have the assurance of knowing Christ, and yet we struggle with all of that because the very means by which we can have Christ abiding in our, our lives are not taking, which he says here. That is, seeking out the living word through the scriptures. I'm not saying this only because this truth that Jesus is stating here in this passage is true. I'm saying it because in my all of my believing years, I can personally give testimony that this has been my experience as well. Um, so what do we do? I think the answer is, it's, it's an easy answer because you do what you already know what to do, right? I think you know the answer, except I'm going to put a little twist on it. Read, memorize, meditate, intentionally set aside time to be in the Word, but remember that it is not the reading or the time you spend that brings the fruit it's the time you spend with Christ, with Christ through his word that brings the fruit. Just dragging your eyes across the page is not the point, but dragging your eyes across the page as a seeker, looking for the one who is your life to communicate with you, to give you direction, to instruct you, to correct you, to counsel you. That's what it means to abide. And it looks like something very practical. It's it's getting into the word in that manner because these are living words and Christ is a living person that wants to communicate to us through his word. It's, it's not just, <clears throat> I've got to read these three chapters today and then check this box. Okay, done, now I'm gonna to go to work. That's not, that's not what it means. So hopefully at this point, there's a clear understanding of what that abiding relationship is supposed to look like. Um, <coughs> sorry again. 
I want us to look at this um, incredible promise now in verse 7. And then Jesus reiterates it in verse 16. Um, and actually, just the verse that Eric picked out this morning in Colossians, it just reaffirmed it all the more. And I didn't even think about that passage, but wow. I might go back and, and read it because it's, it just is amazing. But right here, um, actually, I won't read the verses yet. Does anyone... Do we have any Nintendo players in the room? Has anyone played Nintendo? Does anyone know what the mushrooms stand for? What? Power up. Power up. Yeah. So, <clears throat> so I, I don't know why. I just, when I came across these verses, right in the context of bearing fruit, I pictured them like a power up. Like God saying, okay, I'm giving you these promises in the context of bearing fruit, and these are like the little mushroom, power up, okay? Because this is a promise I'm giving you. Um, I'll go ahead and read verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. And then I'll go ahead and read verse 16. It talks about, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide <clears throat> so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. So are you thinking what I'm thinking? Um, is this promise really that broad? I mean, I'm sure you've read these verses before and you, you're thinking like, well, um, my, from my practical experience, um, haven't we all prayed for things at one time or another that <clears throat> have not worked out the way that we wanted? So, I mean, is there any boundaries around these promises? How are we to understand this promise concerning prayer? Well, if we observe what is around the promises, <coughs> we can see that it indeed has boundaries. It is hemmed in by the context, which is fruit-bearing, prayer concerning fruit-bearing, and it is also hemmed in by a condition, abiding in Christ's words. So the ask whatever you wish and the whatever you ask the Father are in the context of fruit-bearing being requested by those who are abiding in Christ. So the question is, what kind of prayers are we talking about? Okay? What kind of prayers are we talking about? And it's interesting, but do you remember the verse in Colossians that was shared? You see many prayers like this, honestly, from Paul. I'll just <clears throat> um, and so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Only God can do, only God can do. 
so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, only God can do, fully pleasing to him, only God can do, bearing fruit in every good work, only God can do, and increasing in the knowledge of God, only God can do. May you be strengthened with all power, only God can do, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, only God can do. His whole prayer was about asking God for fruit. And we talked about fruit being the things that only God can do. And I feel like God answered those prayers because they are in the context of a man who was abiding in Christ's words and was praying for, in the context of fruit bearing for the Colossian church and the Colossian people. And um, so many of our prayers, while purely intentioned, involve asking God to change circumstances of some kind. And, and I want to say <clears throat> that there's nothing wrong with that. We actually see examples in Scripture of people doing that, right? We see Paul doing that. He says, God, please take away this thorn in the flesh. He wants God to change the circumstances. We see Jesus in the garden saying, God, please take this cup of suffering away from me. He's asking God to change the circumstances, right? Okay, so we, we do that a lot. We ask God to change our circumstances. God, I'm under severe financial pressure. Get me out of this situation, please. God, get me out of this horrible job. God, get me a new job. God, please remedy this health situation. And that's okay to pray those things because God wants us to be dependent on him and he wants us to cry out with those kind of prayers of dependence on him. But how often do we pray in our circumstances for example, God, I am under extreme financial pressures and, my, and I am asking you to intervene. But do we ever include the deeper prayer? Lord, use this situation in such a way that I will bear more fruit. God, I am heavy hearted about this health situation in my life. I ask that you will heal me. But do we ever include a deeper prayer? Lord, through this health situation, please grow me. Please bear much fruit through, through me in this. I just go back to There was a lady who went to church here. Her name was Mary. I remember we visited her, like, <clears throat> it was either in the hospital or the nursing home. I can't remember where she was, but it was like within months from her death. And she was saying that she was praying prayers like, Lord, please bear fruit through me, you know, through the workers that come into my room. And... um I mean, her attitude was, she was, she was dying of cancer and just her attitude was just that she wanted to bear fruit for the Lord. It just was, um, just. So perhaps part of the fruit bearing will come from alleviation of a circumstance, but perhaps God wants to take us through difficulty and endurance to bear fruit through us and in us. 
<clears throat> in the situation where Paul asked God, so I talked to you about Paul requesting that circumstances be changed and Jesus requesting circumstances be changed. I just want to go back to those two guys because, because you can see how their attitude was a little bit different. In the situation where Paul asked God to remove the thorn in the flesh and God said, my grace is enough, perhaps Paul asked to bear fruit through the circumstance because later we see through Paul's life that he had to end up learning to live with that, right? And later on, we see that he says in, in another passage, I have learned to be content in all things. And he states that he could do all things through Christ who gives him strength. And we know that he bore that the rest of his life. In the situation where Jesus asked for the cup of suffering to be removed from him, he followed that with yet not my will, but yours be done. So he asked God to remove the circumstance, to change the circumstance, but he followed it with not my will, but yours be done. So we see where his prayerful heart was and how much fruit was born through his prayer of surrender. So later today or this week, you might wonder, why is God glorified so much through fruit bearing born through us, the branches? Well, I think of it like this. I mean, how many of you have heard of like Usain Bolt? He's like that really fast guy that wins the Olympics all the time in the 100-meter dash. So um, it's, you know, when he wins the 100-meter dash, you know, you're like, wow, that was impressive, right? Um, but if you think about it, I mean, he's a world-class athlete and in a world-class event, and I mean, it's pretty impressive, but it, it's it would be more impressive if a lame person, you know, ran the event and, and won. But it's not quite as impressive as a world-class athlete winning a world-class event because that's what he trained for. That's, that's, he's gifted to do that, and he's, he's able to do that. I think whenever fruit is born through our lives, no matter how small, God is glorified because, one, it is a miraculous thing that a dead person was made alive in the first place, and secondly, that any transformation towards Christ-likeness takes place at all in fleshly people is miraculous. So I want to say one last thing as a word of encouragement. We've seen the words bear fruit, bear much fruit, but I just want to encourage us to know that sanctification is a long, hard process and we need to be patient with it. And we need to be patient with others with it. The joy in sanctification is that every little step where God does a transforming work along the path of making us like Jesus Christ brings him joy and brings him glory. This is where we talked about, like, it's not always in the grand and the glorious. Um <clears throat> I'm not a gardener, but my dad is. Ever since I've known him, he had, he's had a garden. <clears throat> he plants fruit trees, berry trees, all kinds of things. And um, this isn't something to get upset about, so I don't know why. Anyway, and, uh, so it, it, um, whenever we would go visit him, like inevitably we would end up in the garden or we'd end up walking out and we'd walk through his garden. He'd want to show the fruit trees and stuff like that. And um, it didn't matter what time of year it was, whether it was spring, summer, fall, um, whether things were ripe and ready to be plucked 
or whether there were just signs of growth, signs of growth, like a little sprout coming out of the ground or a bud on a fruit tree, you could tell that he was equally joyful and excited to just see progress in each and every one of the plants. And I think that is how God is when he sees his children. So we might not be a full ripe tomato today, but if there's a little bud, you know, a little green leaf, you know, that God sees, he sees joy, he gets joy, and it brings him glory because he sees progress. Um, God wants to bear fruit in our lives. It's the way he's going to be glorified. So seek the life-giving Christ through his words, number one, and two, pray and ask God to produce fruit in and through you. It's a promise that he will answer and, and we just need to do it more. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your word. And um, I thank you for your promise here in John 15. God, I pray that you would just um, remind us of these things just more and more by your spirit that lives in us, God, to, to pray that you would bear fruit in us by transforming us to be more like Christ, that you would bear fruit through us by using us to do the things you want to do in this world that we can't do on our own. And Heavenly Father, I just um, pray, God, that in the days ahead, we would, we would give testimony uh, of your great work um, in and through our lives and encourage one another in those things. In Jesus' name, amen.